0: first two decades of the USS, the United States submarine fleets in the U.S. Navy, when a submarine would sink in fairly deep water, in fact it didn't have to be that deep, even if the crew survived the accident that caused it to sink, the crew basically was left hopeless. Story of 1924 of one of the the early submarines that sank where they know that the crew had survived the crash and the crew was able to make it to an air pocket and live several days. Divers were able to get down and they knew that people were inside and were alive, but there was nothing that they could do to rescue those who had survived the crash who would eventually die there in the bottom of the ocean. That caused the U.S. Navy to begin to seek a solution And uh, what developed from that, if there's any Navy people here, well, you may be familiar with the term of the McCann Rescue Chamber uh, that was developed uh, to help. They could lower that chamber, create an air pocket inside that chamber, and, and allow crew inside, seal it off, raise it back up. It took years to work on that project until they came up with a working model. And May the 23rd of 1939, It made its debut. It was actually still in an experimental stage at the time of the sinking of the Squalus off of the Massachusetts coast. And uh, off of, I'm sorry, off of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And and the the submarine rescue vessel that was actually uh, captained by Lieutenant Commander Momsen, who was serving of the head of the experimental diving unit, was within about 24 hours of where the submarine sank. And so they deployed there. They arrived on site in less than 24 hours. They lowered the rescue chamber, a kind of an upgraded version that they'd been working on that he, this this captain himself or this lieutenant, had developed. And in four dives over the next 13 hours were able to rescue all 13 survivors. One of the the, the most challenging or, or telling things, though, is those sailors that were trapped in that submarine pretty well knew that their circumstances were dire. And in fact, when divers first went down to the submarine, they heard tapping from inside the submarine. And so they tapped on the outside of the submarine, trying to see if any, you know, who was still alive. And and the response from inside by Morris Code were the four words, Is there any hope? Within the next few hours, all 33 men who were alive at that point were rescued. You know, we live in a time where we watch the news, uh, we see, I I was, had tuned things out for a couple days over Thanksgiving and Friday afternoon at some time I checked the news and found out there's a whole new scary COVID strain out there that's shutting down nations and and, uh, disrupting governments and uh, the stock market took apparently a huge plunge on, on Friday based on the news of this one new COVID strain. But we live in a time where people are crying out is there any hope? Oftentimes, the sad thing is many of us within the church are walking around with frowns on our faces as though we are without hope. But Regardless of who you are, what your circumstances, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you are trusting in Him, the resounding answer to that question is yes. There is always hope. I have stood next to the the casket when family would come and ask me, "Is there any hope?" Yes, because of Jesus, there is hope. I've stood by the bedside of those who had just received a heart a uh, valve transplant or, or had just received a bypass and, and they, they, if you've seen anybody that's just been through that kind of surgery they're pale and they have that ashen gray look and, and people will ask the question is there any hope? I'm here to tell you today that regardless of your circumstances if you put your trust in Christ there is always hope because hope is not based on our ability to do anything. The hope of the believer is based in God's redemptive work. Our hope is a a biblical hope, a biblical faith that rests on the trustworthiness of God to keep his promises, not on our ability to do anything. So yes, there is always hope for those who follow Christ. The hope of the Jewish people For centuries was placed in a coming Messiah. Sadly, many of those who were alive when that Messiah appeared missed him. John knew it, John put it in his prologue. He says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But hear this. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. Every person who was willing to receive Christ... Every one of you who is willing to receive and put your faith and trust in Christ has hope. You have been made a child of God. And so when we celebrate the theme, the Advent theme of hope, the idea, of course, is, is the first Sunday of Advent. We're looking forward to the birth of Christ. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. And, and of course, where we stand, we look back at the birth of Christ. And yet, there is a, a, a a hope that that comes. There's a there's a little ditty I learned a few years ago. Uh, Zach Hudson taught me this. It begins the day after Thanksgiving. Zach and his family had gone to visit family up in Oklahoma, and they were they were headed back to uh, Texas when he was serving here as an associate pastor. And they begin to hear in the back seat little Andrew. If he watches this, he's gonna kill me because I understand that as a teenager, he's kind of disavowed this, but little Andrew was singing, Thanksgiving's over, Christmas is coming. Thanksgiving's over, Christmas is coming. He hates that song now, but every time when we finish Thanksgiving, Andrew's voice is in my head. Thanksgiving's over. Christmas is coming. It is time to celebrate the birth of the Savior who in, wherein we find all of our hope. Today we're going to look at a unique passage because our hope was born in a manger in Bethlehem. Our hope seemed to come to an end when he died on a hill outside of Jerusalem. When he was buried in that garden tomb, though, our hope arose out of the grave. You know, I've learned a lot of new songs since Matthew has been been our worship leader. And Corey led us in one of my favorites today, that song, Living Hope. What an incredible verse. When we come to that that third verse toward, toward the end of the song, when he says, then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. We celebrate the birth, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because it is in him that we find our hope, but we cannot forget, and I want us to, to take that to that next step. We touched on this last week when we celebrated the, the Lord's Supper, because the Lord's Supper, Jesus said, reminds us of something else. He said that I won't have this meal again with you until I return in glory. Toward the end of Jesus's life, Jesus reminded his disciples right before he died that his hope was not even gonna end at his ascension to heaven. Our hope still has something to look forward to. Turn with me to Luke 21, verses 35 or 25 through 36. Now I want to introduce this passage because there's a longer passage in Luke 21 that speaks of what is coming. Okay? From Jesus' perspective, as he spoke to those disciples and those who were listening to him at that point, beginning back in about verse 4 of Luke 21, Jesus begins to talk about the signs of the age, things that are coming ahead. But the first section there, Luke 21 verses 4 down through, uh, down through verse 24 Jesus is speaking to those Jews about what was coming in their lifetime, the destruction of the temple at Jerusalem in 70 A.D. and He was given a warning toward the the, the what was about to happen to those who had claimed uh, they were God's children to the to the nation of Israel at that point would be destroyed in 70 A.D. There's some language differences, and I don't want to get too deep and, and and get this overcomplicated, but there is a change in tone in the language. That that Jesus uses that makes clear to most scholars that twenty or verse four down through verse twenty four is dealing with looking forward to the destruction or the end of Israel as they knew it at seventy a d and then the language changes in verse twenty five and Jesus begins to talk about the end of the age what we would refer to as the end of the world or his his final return his uh, uh, his I'm sorry, the the, the rapture and and the end of days when, when Jesus brings things to a close. So I want you to begin with me there because our hope today is still, even though it's rooted in what's happened in the past, our hope still has a future aspect to it. Everything that we have to look forward to as a believer gets better from this day, at, this day forward as we look forward to the coming of Christ. Read with me verse 25 down through verse 36. The scripture here says, Then there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and there will be anguish on earth among nations bewildered by the roaring of the seas and the waves. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is near. Then he told them a parable, look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap." For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth, but be alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus here gives a warning to all people that there is one one day he is coming back. And his return this is going to be the first point. Jesus is coming back. Let's settle that issue. Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will come in a different form than his first coming. When Jesus entered uh, this earth, his incarnation in the first instance is what we're celebrating during this Christmas season. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus came as an infant, dependent upon a mom and a dad who would raise him. He came to, to uh manger. He he came in a lowly way. His birth was announced to, to shepherds first. He came to walk among us as a infant and yet even in all of his frailty in the human form that he took on, he was always God. He was God. He was God in human skin. He was God in an infant's body. He was God as a child. He was still God. There was no point in his existence that he ever became not God. Philippians tells us that there was a time when he set aside some of his deity. He set aside some of the claims of his Godness to humble himself, to be to take on the form of a man, so that he would die on a cross, taking on our sin. But never did he cease being God. He always was. And in fact, it related to our study today. Jesus says that as God, even as the Son of God, he was limited to some extent in knowledge. In Mark chapter 13, verse 32, he says, concerning the day and the hour, when he's talking about this return, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So when Jesus was on earth, he, he tells us that, that he did not know. Did that make him any less God? No. He chose not to know while he was on earth. I assure you that as he stepped into the presence of his Father, he's once again completely omniscient. But the Son of God on earth in that time did not know. And that's one of the reasons that when he talks about the end times here, even he did not know the date of his return. Only the Father knew. There's a couple things about his coming that are key, that are crucial for us, that he tells us here. I want to stay within the the bounds of this text. I'll explain it by looking at some other texts, but I want to stay within the guidelines of this text as we look at it. The first one is this. His coming will be sudden. When he returns, he will appear in such a way that it will be sudden, and many will be shocked. He's going to give us a warning in a moment to tell us that If you're paying attention, you shouldn't be shocked. But many and most will be shocked. In fact, verse 26 26 says, people will faint from fear at the expectations of things that are coming on the world. Because the powers of heaven will be shaken. When Jesus returns, he will come quickly. He will come suddenly. Second, and I want you to see from this text, is when he comes, he will come in great power and great glory. He won't be coming back as an infant child. He won't be entering Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. He'll be coming in full battle gear, arrayed on, the, on a white stallion through the clouds. You see images in Revelation, images in, in Old Testament prophets of the return of Christ. And he will come with great glory and great power to such an extent that the heavens will be shaken and people will fall to their face in fear because of the glory with which he comes. Very little of that happened at the first coming, at Christmas time, in the manger. But his next, the next time Jesus comes, it will be in power and glory. Amen. Amen. The Savior who died on a cross, who allowed man to drive nails in his wrist and thorns in his head, when he comes back, that ain't happening again. He's not going not gonna to submit to the will of man. He's not going to humble himself to a beating, to torture. He's going to come in glory and power and establish his kingdom forever. And, and the good news is as we move forward, he, he tells us that those who have become his children will become a part of that victory, a part of that kingdom. The second thing that I want you to see here from this text is that his word is faithful and there will be indications of his return. He says, he told him a parable. He said, look at the fig tree. This isn't the first time that he's used the parable of the fig tree, but look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they begin to put out leaves, you can see for yourselves and recognize that summer is already near. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment, because we live in a a technological age. We live in an age of calendars and, and, you know, information cycles and continuous news cycles. Most of us know that summer is near because it's on our calendar, because it's in the news. When you live in an agrarian society, pre-technology, oftentimes their best indicators of where they were, unless you were an astrologer or astrologist or astronomer, and you studied the cycles of the moon and the stars, you were a farmer who you looked at the signs of the land. And so they, they would be able to tell When summer was near, when when spring was turning to summer, when the leaves would begin to bud out, they would know that that the days were getting longer. and It was time to to plant so that they could begin to prepare for harvest. They looked at those kind of signs. And so Jesus says, look at the fig tree. How is it that you know that summer is already near? You look for the signs. You look for the buds on the plant. In the same way... Look for the signs. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. When you see signs of the end, <coughs> when you see earthquakes and, and, and wars and, and battles, you can know that the end is right around the corner. Now one of the, the challenges for mankind over the last 2,000 years. You don't have to study very deeply in in Christian theology to understand that every generation of Christians saw the earthquakes and the wars and the battles of their generation as the time or the indications that the time was near for Jesus' return. And, And as I've studied that over time, and as I've I've considered that, at least the big picture of all of that, that's what causes me to be cautious and careful about getting too deep into the details of of those. I remember sitting in in a, a Sunday evening Bible study led by a professor from Howard Payne University when I was a teenager in high school, and he detailed... How all of the, the military weaponry that had been developed over the last 20 to 30 years uh, exactly coincided with images of the book of Revelation. And how we must be coming near the end because this type of, of cobra helicopter looked like a grasshopper uh, lion's head with a scorpion tail. It was predicted in Revelation. And I think that it, those, those kind of things we have to be cautious about. But we need to be ready and we need to be aware and keep our eyes toward the heavens. Because he tells us that he will give us indications. We need to be prepared. Now, there's some language here. And this is the one confusing verse from this text that that causes a consternation for scholars. Verse 32, he says, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place what did he mean by this generation that has caused some people to believe that he was talking about that generation to whom he was speaking the rest of the language in the context from verse 25 down through verse 36 does not indicate that that the rest of the context from 25 down through verse 36 does indicate that he's talking about something at the end of times there's two possible meanings that most scholars give to the language here. The first one is this, uh, that that generation, that it's the generation that begins to see these signs. One of the, the signs that that I, really has, I've paid most attention to is what goes on in Jerusalem, what goes on in Israel. Because Israel was destroyed in 70 AD and it became a nation again in 1948. And so it seems to me that we are certainly much closer to the end of times now. Once Israel became a nation, the Hebrew language that was dead, that was not an official language for uh, 18 centuries, became an official language of a nation again. And the people who identified as, as Jews begin to gather again and, and, and dwell in a physical nation of Israel. And yet here we are, another 70 years past that time, nearly. And, and with that, well, just over 70 years. And after 70 years, you begin, to, you begin to wonder. But I would caution that I believe that that is one of the things that had to take place before Christ returned. And so when we, we look toward these signs, if he means that generation that begin to see the signs, we may very well be in that generation that's gonna see the return of Christ. I often say when I stand in a, at a graveside, at a burial of, after a funeral service, that one of the most exciting places to be when Jesus returns is gonna be right there in that cemetery. Because scripture says that Jesus will return suddenly and when he returns the dead in Christ are gonna be raised first and then those who are alive in him are gonna be caught up together with them in the air what a day that is gonna be and if that day happens in my generation I would love absolutely love to be preaching a funeral standing in the middle of a graveyard when those graves burst open of those who are asleep in Christ and are resurrected and caught up with Christ in the air oh to see that day Lord, let me be a part of that generation. The word may mean, and this is what E. Earl Ellis, who is a, a renowned New Testament scholar that taught at, at Southwestern for years, he passed away a few years ago. Edward Schweitzer, both simply saw that generation as the generation of the church age. That, that it was this age, there was nothing else that God was gonna do. Once Jesus ascended to heaven, There there was no more time that he was going to be active on this earth until he returned. And so this generation, the church age, those of us who are his children should be always looking forward to the return of Christ. We should always be prepared. We should always be walking in a relationship with him knowing that at any moment, at any day, his return is imminent. The the second thing, so the first thing is, there will be signs of his return, Jesus says. Second, hear this. Heaven and earth will pass away. Heaven and earth, as we know it, will be destroyed. That sounds almost crazy to us. All of the things that he created, all of creation will be ultimately destroyed By the hand of God, I believe, because it was all stained by sin. I want to read with you, and you can listen or follow along, a passage in in 2 Peter chapter 3 that, that speaks very clearly to this. And it also speaks to the time that we're in, because there are scoffers right now. If you get out on the internet and you say anything about Jesus' return, if you say anything about Jesus, you're going to get scoffed at by, by people on, on social media. But certainly, if you say anything about the end of times, verse, chapter 3, beginning in verse 3 of, of Second Peter, the scripture says, above all, be aware of this, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep. All things continue as they were since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this. By the word of God the heavens came into being long ago. And the earth was brought about from water through water. Through these the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire. Being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Dear friends. Dear friends. Don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. I want to pause there for just a moment because you've heard that thrown around before when you talk about end time stuff. That's not someone's philosophy, that's the Word of God. Hear that. That's the Word of God. The Lord does not delay His promise. As some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, and the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be, dis- will be disclosed. Since all these things, are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Heaven and earth are temporary. Jesus tells us in Luke 20, excuse me, Luke 21 there, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away. Why does that matter? Because we spend our lives, hundreds of people, thousands of people, generation after generation after generation has has spent our lives collecting and building and and, and constructing things that are ultimately going to be destroyed. I had a friend in high school that put it very simply. When he first came to faith, he said, there's two things that matter, God and people. Because they're the only things that are going to last forever. He was right in that. God will be forever and people will last forever. Well, what about those people who don't know Christ? Yeah, they'll last forever too. But the scripture tells us they'll have an eternity of suffering. Hard for us to fathom. Heaven and earth are temporary. But don't miss this. My words will never pass away. My promise, my words will never pass away. Why is it that we spend so much time reading the word of God in our worship service? Because his word is worth it. His word will not pass away. His promises, his word will last forever. You may hear scoffers saying, oh, where's that coming you're talking about? Oh, where's the end of times? God's word will be fulfilled in God's timing. His words are everlasting. God's promises will be fulfilled. Jesus is coming back The first paragraph here tells us. The second paragraph reminds us that he is faithful to his word. There are signs of his coming and he is faithful to his word. And then the third paragraph is is at least structured around two imperative statements. The first one is this. Be on guard. Be on guard. To be on guard means to stand at attention, to be ready, to be watchful. Be on guard. Why? Why what must we be on guard? So that our minds are not dulled. It's real easy to get caught up in the things of this world. And he lists a few of the things of this world that are most dulling to the mind. Carousing not a word we use a lot anymore, and maybe in, in some of the older generation's language, to, to carouse around. And, and basically, you're trolling for trouble. Uh, nowadays, you're, you troll for trouble on the Internet. People would troll for trouble by going up and down uh, Main Street looking for, for stuff to get into. Some of you that grew up in small towns, that meant going from you know maybe the Sonic to the grocery store and back and forth. But carousing around. Letting your mind be dulled, not paying attention, not being alert. Drunkenness, chemical dependency, whether that be from alcohol or or, or medication or something else that you're using to dull your mind. He gives us warnings specifically here against drunkenness. But what else dulls your mind? He says the worries of life. When you're so, so caught up with the worries of this world, what's going to happen in this world? What's going to happen to even what's going to happen to my health? What, what if this happens? What if that happens? If you spend your time worried about this world, by definition, you're not focused on or concerned about the world that's going to last forever, His kingdom. And so when we're caught up in the things of this world, the pursuits of this life, the worries of this life, we're going to miss out on on God's kingdom. We're going to miss out on, on being prepared and being on guard for his return. So be on guard. And then he says, be alert at all times. What's really the difference between those? To to be on guard, he tells us, he gives us some warnings about things that would dull your mind. When he tells us to be alert, he tells us some things to do. So, some things to stay away from. Stay away from the carousing. Stay away from the drunkenness. Stay away from focusing on the worries of this world because they're like a trap. But be alert. How do you stay alert? Praying. 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 There in verse 36, be alert at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all things that are going to take place. Praying. What is prayer? Prayer is that constant communication with God. It's walking in that relationship with him, staying attuned to him, attuned to his leadership for your life, his purpose for your life, communicating with him, lifting your burdens before him, and hearing his direction for your life. Staying in tune, be alert, praying, so that you aren't caught unprepared. What does it mean to be caught unprepared? The most important thing that I can tell you here, the the, the one thing that you have to do to be prepared for the second coming of Christ is believe. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe that he did what scripture says he did on the cross for you and for me so that we could have everlasting life. Believe that he's coming back. Be ready. If you have not come to that place where you have believed, you put your faith and trust in him, you will not escape the dangers of his coming. For some, the return of Christ is going to be in a incredible, glorious day of celebration. For some, it's going to be a horrible day of condemnation. And it all hinges upon whether or not you were prepared as the last phrase of the last sentence of the last verse says, to stand before the Son of Man. The only way that you can stand before the Son of Man is if you put your faith and trust in him and receive the cleansing of your sins by his blood. If you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have entered into a relationship with him, if you are a part of his family, as we read all the way back in John chapter one, those who did receive him became the sons of God. They became the children of God to those who believe in his name. If you have believed in him and trusted in him and are walking in a relationship with him, you have nothing to fear at the return of Christ. And in fact, you ought to be looking forward to it. You ought to be excited about it. It ought to be a day that excites you and that, that, that you celebrate and you wish for. Well, Pastor, what if I don't make it until that day when he returns? You still have to be prepared to stand before him. Because if he doesn't come for you, or if he doesn't come for the whole world while you're still alive, he's coming for you first. And if you're not prepared to stand before the Son of Man, when you take your last breath on this earth, whether it's because you're caught up together in the air, or whether it's because you stand on this earth for judgment, or whether it's because you've taken your last breath and died, if you're not ready to stand before the Son of Man, when you take your last physical breath, you'll be separated from God for all of eternity. My prayer would be and has been for most of my adult life that I would get to see the return of Christ. What a glorious day that would be, to be caught up together, to be raptured with believers together in the air to greet my Lord and Savior in there and on that day to meet those of my loved ones who have already were asleep in Christ as 1 Thessalonians 4 says and their bodies are in the grave they're caught up and and, and reunited with the Spirit and, and to greet them and to meet them in the air what a glorious day that would be but if I don't live to see that day I am absolutely confident, as my daughter Katie was, that when I take my last breath on this earth, I will awake to the glorious face of my Savior who has come to take me home. And in John 14, that's what he promised his disciples, Peter and James and John and the other eight that were still there with him. His promise to them was that I'm going to prepare a place for you And I'll come again to receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is returning. His physical return is imminent. It's unquestionable. He will come back for his church. If you're not alive when that happens, it means that you've already met him. My prayer is that whenever you meet him, whether it's on that day, or it's someday sooner that you're ready to stand before the Son of God. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and grace.